cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams-Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, what can I say? Gary Cohn with just a stellar career at Goldman Sachs, where he spent 25 years rising through the ranks, commodities trading, fixed income, currency, uh, eventually running uh, equity, and soon after becoming president and chief operating officer at Goldman. Soon after, he's tapped by the White House to become director of the National Economic Council and chief economic advisor to President Trump uh, starting at the beginning of the administration in 2017. Really a fascinating career, a really, really interesting person. We dive deep into all sorts of things about running businesses, managing risk. And then when we began talking about his public sector service, we went deep into the Tax Cuts and Job Act of 2017. Uh, if you're at all interested in that, you will find this to be an absolutely masterclass in how legislation is assembled, how it's shepherded through the House, through the Senate, through all the competing uh, interest groups. I found this discussion just really to be absolutely fascinating, and I'm positive you will also, with no further ado, from the White House and Goldman Sachs, Gary Cohn. Barry, it's great to be here. It's great to have you. So let's start out talking a little bit about your background and your career. I never would have guessed you began at U.S. Steel. Tell us, when was that and, and what did you do there? So it was a very short <laughs> career at U.S. Steel. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I, I graduated college in 82, and I, I thought it was going to take a, a few months off and regroup and my dad didn't think that was part of the agenda. So he uh, you know, woke me up my first Monday morning home at 6 a.m., threw the lights on, asked me what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And I think I made some wise crack. And he Go said, to Europe. Go to spend a few yeah, weeks away. I, I, I think I told him, I, I said, I think I told him you're looking at it. And he said, <laughs> yeah, not in my house. 
So I uh, went out and uh, tried to find a job locally. This is when I was still living in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got a job with the Home Building Products Division of United States Steel, which was a company that United States Steel had acquired in Cleveland called Allside. They sold um, replacement windows, vinyl siding, aluminum siding, gutter coil, things like that. Uh, I ended up starting there in the summer of 82, and by the fall of 82, I was gone. Now, there was one really important part of that. As part of my job training, I was sent to the big sales offices to learn how the product was sold. One of the big sales offices was out in Long Island in Garden City. Mm -hmm. And so in my second week in the sales office in Garden City, I said to the the gentleman I was working with, I said, you know, I think we're going to work really hard Monday to Thursday, and I'm going to go in the city Friday. And he said, that's a really good idea. So I went in the city on Friday, and that's how I found my way down to the commodities exchange, the commodities floor. And that's where I got my job. And that's how I turned my career into a financial career. So I had a wildly incorrect assumption. I just pictured you working with the various input commodities to steel, iron, plus energy, plus manganese, nickel, chromium, carbon, vanadium, all those things, and said, hey, I can move to the commodities exchange and and make a killing trading. Nothing like that happened. Nothing like that. How did you find your way to the COMEX? So two years earlier, and now we're going back in time, the summer of 80, uh, for those of you that remember the summer of 80, the Hunt brothers at that point were tr- were exactly were trying to corner the gold and silver market. Um, I was doing an internship at a local brokerage office in Cleveland, Ohio, and I did the typical internship. You know, a week in the back office, a week in equities, a mm-hmm. week in fixed income, a week in commodities, a week in bonds, and then four weeks wherever you'd like to go. And of course, where I would like to go is where the guys are screaming and yelling in the back corner, which were the commodity guys. So I ended up being allowed to go sit with the commodity guys. And at the time, they were doing the Chicago-New York gold arbitrage. They had sent set up a gold arbitrage desk. Um, Meaning that the slight difference in prices between the two exchanges, they would help um, bring them into line and maybe pocket a few cents on a, each a, transaction. Exactly. And at the time, they weren't slight differences. Oh, really? Yeah, because it, it, the, the, the Hunt brothers, when they came into the COMEX at the time, they were only buying one market. They were buying the, the COMEX market. So the COMEX market would move you know, $10, $20, $30, and the Chicago market would lag dramatically behind. Wow. So there were these five-plus-dollar disparities in the price of gold. And so they would sit there and trade. And so after a week there, I, I said to the guys on the desk, hey, can I open an account and do this? And they said, <laughs> hey, yeah, look. How hard could it be? Yeah, you're, you're allowed to open an account. So I opened an account, and I sat there, and I traded the, uh, the uh, New York-Chicago gold arbitrage for the next sort of close to a month. And I said, wow, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. They're just giving away free money. You were making cash in that I was making cash while I was sitting there. <laughs> so I decided at that point, I said, oh, I, 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 I got to go to the floor of the exchange. This is really interesting. This is a really interesting opportunity. And I really did not want to go back to college. You know, I had a... A long discussion with my dad, you know, I said, Dad, this is silly that I go back to college. There's this unique opportunity. I don't know how long it's going to last. 
um, and I'm going to sit here and trade this um, this gold arbitrage. And he said, no, no, you're going back to college. <laughs> I don't care what you do. So um, I did the best thing I could do. I went back and did my next three years of school in two years. Uh-huh. And then I got myself to the floor of the exchange by the end of 82. And then what were you doing on the, what were you trading on the floor? And how did you stay, long did you stay as, as a floor trader? So in, in many respects, I got lucky in my first job offer because the COMEX had just started to trade options on futures. It was brand new. No one on the floor knew the options market. So one of the large firms there approached me and said, hey, do you know anything about options? Can you help us trade options? And I said, of course, even though I knew nothing about options. But nobody knew anything about options on futures. They, they're brand spanking new. Right. No one, no one had traded them on the floor. There were no option traders there. The big option trading firms from the other option trading exchanges hadn't come down to the floor. They hadn't become members. They hadn't rented seats. So it was, there was no real knowledge there. So literally in the course of five days, I went out and tried to learn how to trade options. And I got lucky enough to get a job. I stood behind one of the brokers for one of the large firms. And I was literally saying, okay, buy that call, sell that put, go sell those futures. And he goes, what'd I do? Well, you locked in you know, $4 an ounce. He goes, how, how'd I do that? I said, well, here's how you do that. How do I get out of it? I said, okay, we're going to work our way out of it. And I stood behind that person uh, for the better part of a year. And then after a year... You know, I, I said, this is kind of silly. I'm sitting here telling this guy what to do. Right. I got to figure out how to get my own seat and trade my own account. And so about a year into my experience on the floor, I went out and, and got a seat on the floor of the Comex. What, do I, you remember what they cost back then? Uh, about $150,000. Okay. It was a real money in '82. It was a substantial amount of money. Now the good news is you could lease them. You could Mm -hmm. lease seats on a on a monthly basis. Um, So I went and got a floor, and I and I opened up an account with a clearing member. When the clearing member guarantees your trades, and I started trading for my own account. And so I traded my own account from sort of the end of '83 until uh, I left the floor of the exchange. And that was how much later? So I, I stayed uh, on the floor till till um, basically 1990, and uh, you know ended up moving from trading options to trading more and more futures. Mm-hmm. You know the futures markets were were expanding; they were growing. It was an interesting time. Right. Uh, but I, I you know I would trade almost anything that was volatile that day, and it was an in- it was really an interesting experience learning how a fundamental terminal market. So I'm glad you mentioned you shifted somewhat from options to futures. Options, your risk is predefined. However much you're putting up, that's as much you can lose. Well, unless you unless you sell a naked call. Oh, okay, fair <laughs> enough. You sell a naked call, you right. It's it's no different. But, but inherently in futures, a whole lot more leverage, a whole lot more risk. How fundamental was that to your learning about investing, trading, risk management, starting with futures. So it, it was important where I found a real niche on the floor. And everyone finds their little niche on the floor. Um, and, and being on the floor, it's an interesting environment because everyone's there for their own little specific reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and where I found the niche is at that time, because things have changed dramatically, you know, the, the futures exchanges listed about 24 months of futures contracts. You know, the, the first and second delivery months traded 90% of the volume. 
Mm-hmm. But then you had people that wanted to trade the outdated months. You know, they wanted to trade the one year forward or the 18 month forward. Where I really specialize and where I spent my time is figuring out how to price the one year forward or the 18 month forward and making prices in those markets. There were only two or three of us on the floor that did that. Mm-hmm. So when any of the orders came in to buy the non active months, there were only two or three of us that would make a price. And so I carved out a, a unique opportunity with some other people. I wasn't the only one doing it on the floor. And, and it was a unique opportunity to really learn more of the fundamentals of the business. It also brought in you know, interest rates. And interest rates expect, because the forward curve is a function of interest you're, rates. You're doing a lot of math in your head I'm on doing the fly. A, I'm doing an awful lot of math in my head on the fly. And to hedge your position... You know, how do you hedge, you know, a, a long-dated future versus a short-dated future? It's not one-to-one. There's mathematical formulas on, to, on how to hedge your book and count your months of exposure and look at your interest rate exposure, look at your underlying exposure, look at your present value of your future cash flows. It becomes much more interesting than just trading the spot month in and out. So mm-hmm. that's where I really learned how to trade and how to think about cash flows and think about supply-demand. It's a fairly obvious transition from the floor of the comex to goldman sachs how how did you uh meet goldman what how did how did that next step come about so by the time i was sort of at the end of my career in 80 89 90 you know i'd become a fairly large trader on the floor and when you're a fairly large trader on the floor that means you're taking the other side of the institutional business flow the institutional business flow at the time was probably the biggest player was 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 Goldman Sachs. It was Jay Aaron, Goldman Sachs, uh, Morgan Stanley, a uh, little bit of AIG, a little bit of JP Morgan, you know, and then a bunch of the the funds. Mm-hmm. So I knew all of the Goldman traders because when they came in to move volume, I was there to to, to make prices, and, and so we had a. You know, we had a, a, a good relationship with each other. And, I'm going to assume you weren't taking the other side of the trade all that often with them, or oh, I was I, taking the other side of the trade all the time. Oh, really? Okay. But remember, they, we we had completely different things we were trying to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Goldman had clients on the other side; they were trying to make their clients a, he- a price and get hedged, mm-hmm. and they were going to walk away from the trade. I was making a price, and I may be out of it in 30 seconds or 40 seconds or 50 seconds. I was trying to figure out, you know, what was the price I needed for the next five minutes mm-hmm. to clear the volume Got and it. move it around. And if I traded something, where could I move it? What could I? What could I? What could I buy or sell against it to make myself um, as, as risk reducing as possible? Mm-hmm. So we had different motives. And so I was able to do my job. They were able to do their job. And that's what a a terminal market does. It allows the different um, factors or the different uh, people trying to get done what they need to get done a place to meet. And and so I had become closer and closer to the Goldman Sachs people. I'd become closer to the AIG people. I'd become close to everyone. And in, in, uh, in 1990, Goldman had partner elections and the, the gentleman who was running the metals trading desk, you know, called me in the office one day and I just thought we were going to have a conversation about the markets and, you know, what, what I was thinking, what he was thinking. And he said to me, he said, Hey, look, you know, I just became partner here. I think, uh, there's a great opportunity. I'm going to really continue to build this business. And instead of you just taking the other side of our business all day long and fighting with us, why don't you come up here and join us? 
Uh, at the time, it was the farthest thing from my mind. Uh, but the more I thought about it and the more I saw the trends of what was going on in the industry, and the industry had changed quite dramatically over the prior five years, it had gone from a fairly heavy retail business to a very institutional business. No no individual was really trained commodity futures. If you wanted that exposure, you were giving your money to a professional, a commodity trading advisor mm-hmm. or some hedge fund. So it was becoming very institutionalized. So it was harder and harder to make money, or I was taking more and more risk to make the same amount of money. So when um, this individual, Jim Riley, came to me, I said, you know, this is, this is not the craziest thing I've ever heard of. And he and I came to an agreement that I could keep my seat if I ever wanted to go back. I could do a few things to make sure that if the transition upstairs from the floor environment to the trading desk environment didn't work, that I felt like I had a safety net. Well, I never really needed that safety net, but it was nice to have that safety net. Huh. Re- really quite fascinating. You, you then spend, what, the next 25 years at, at Goldman Sachs? You rose through the ranks eventually becoming president and COO, um, pretty good decision, leaving the floor of the comics? I think it was one of my great decisions in life. <laughs> Re- really? Besides, so, besides getting married and a few other things, I I, I can't really just tell you what other better decisions. So you run commodities for a while at Goldman. Um, what was that like? And do you still, like, look at what's going on today in energy. Mm-hmm. When you look around, do you get that itch? Do you feel like, I want to I wanna, I wanna do some futures trading or... Yeah, look, once a commodities trader, always a commodities right. trader. So I look at prices of commodities every day, mm-hmm. um, and I have views on the markets every day. Uh, I don't know if they're sophisticated enough that I would trade futures, but you know, trading underlying equities and trading you know equities that have high correlation to commodities is something I, I'm comfortable with. Um, it was a unique opportunity at the time because if you go back to that early 90s period, you know, commodities were somewhat in a bull market. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was a pretty bull market environment. And, you know, there were a lot of hedge funds talking about how, to, how they were making 20, 30, 40% returns in commodities. Well, the team at Goldman Sachs had figured out if you bought like one gold futures contract for the year, you would have made 30%. So, you know, we, we, we got involved and created a benchmark, a commodity indice at the time. Uh, so there was a way to judge yourself. Did you actually outperform the market? You know, I had the interesting opportunity to be part of the team that built a commodity index. I Once I got done building it, I, I was the one that traded that index. So I got exposure to 18, 18 markets, many of which I'd never traded in my life. Uh, so that was really unique. Um, it allowed me to build some new, a, a new business, allowed, it, allowed me and Goldman to expand into a lot of new markets where there was huge business opportunities for our clients. Hmm. Really, really intriguing. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. 
EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what makes Goldman Sachs so special. You spent most of your career there. Why is it so unique? So when I went to Goldman in, in, in 1990, it was a small private partnership. I mean, it was a really small private partnership looking back. 500 you know, partners? Oh, less, substantially less. Really? Yeah. I, I think the most interesting document that I pull up from time to time is the S one from the public filing of Goldman Sachs, which was in the in the late nineties? If you look at the if you look at the filing, and you look at the size of the company and the revenue, the entire yearly revenue numbers would be a bad quarter right now. You That's know, it unbelievable. Just tells you, and and so there was so much growth going on in Goldman when I went there in the nineties, um, and. I had a unique seat, you know, and, and, and the partners there provided me a unique seat. And they gave me enormous amount of latitude and responsibility to keep building businesses. So, as you said, I, I, I joined the firm as part of J. Aaron. At that point, J. Aaron still was a quasi-standalone quasi business. It was wholly owned by Goldman Sachs. Uh, but we hadn't quite integrated into the Goldman Sachs culture. So the first thing that happened in my career there is, you know, J. Aaron became part of fixed income. So we, we, became, we went from fixed income and J. Aaron to FIC, fixed income, currency, and commodities. That was a big move, taking these, you know, crazy commodity guys right. and putting them in with these very sophisticated fixed income guys. So part of that transition and that was a, that was a big move to create FIC, and, and it didn't happen overnight. There was a lot of natural tension in, involved in that. And then, even when we were combined by name alone, mm -hmm. we still ran ourselves independently. So then I got the unique opportunity to be the I, I would call it guinea pig. I was the, the the commodity guy. They got put into running a fixed income business. I didn't lose my responsibility running the commodities business, but we moved the emerging market business down to what used to be the J. Aaron floor. On the J. Aaron floor was the commodity businesses as well as the FX business. 
So we had the, you know, the metals business, we had the oil business, we had the grain business, we had the coffee business, we had a coffee roasting room, we had a tasting room, and then we had the FX business. And in the middle, we decided, which made sense, to put the emerging market debt business. All, all related, currency, yeah. commodities, and EM Ma- debt. Made sense to yeah. us. Made sense. At the time, the Mexican, so after the Mexican restructuring, they had, they had Mexican bonds with an oil option embedded in them. You had a lot of currency forwards trading, which made sense. So we moved emerging markets down. And I was asked to run the emerging markets business. So I was the first sort of guy that went from being a pure J. Aaron guy to making that crossover to commodities and a fixed income business. So prior to that, have you had any management experience or leadership experience? That's a big, raucous floor. And I would imagine that desk was was a handful to deal with. What, what was it like stepping into that role. So I had been running the commodities business. So I had been managing the commodities business. We had built some new businesses. We had built our, our Goldman Sachs commodity index business. So so I had had you know, a lot of responsibility building a business and, and, and building it out quite well. I had spent uh, four years in London building our commodity business there. So the management piece of it was not what was the challenge to me. The challenge to me was I had never been involved and a fixed income business. You know, to me, I remember the moment, you know, where, where, where I had to learn something new for the first time. I had, I'd spent my whole life in supply demand. Mm-hmm. So this is supply, this is demand. You know, this is how you look at supply demand. And all of a sudden, I'm in this world where, okay, we've got the, you know, Mexico 23 bond trading XYZ, and it's 102, 103, 104. Like, this thing is undervalued. We should buy it. And the guys go, no, 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 no. I go, why wouldn't we buy it? We got to own this thing. They go, they can turn around and issue more tomorrow. <laughs> and I go, oh, man. Like, the whole supply-demand fundamentals, <laughs> Right. I had to change my whole thinking. There's, o- there's only so much gold and silver around. Right. But bonds, but, how much you want? Right. You got all the bo- you, bond, you, all you, know, you want. The, the government of Mexico can turn around and reissue, can, can open the issue or reissue a new bond tomorrow. So the amount of Mexican sovereign bonds can change tomorrow, which all of a sudden was a whole new way of thinking about right. the world that the supply-demand fundamentals of a commodities market are not the same as the supply-demand fundamentals of a fixed-income market. So, you know, the 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 opportunity to bring that um, emerging markets desk down to into the J. Aaron world worked out fairly well. Um, I got the opportunity to go from the emerging markets world into the mortgage world. So they 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 sent me into the next beast, which was the mortgage world. And, and I have to interrupt you and just point out, 1990 when you start, think about the timing. You're halfway through an 18-year equity bull market, which we'll talk about in a minute. You're a decade into what's going to end up being a four-decade fixed-income bull market. Mortgages are really starting to ramp up and becoming very tradable. Your timing couldn't have been been any better. When were you promoted to global co-head of equities and fixed income? So (laughs) it went something like this. So I end up going into the mortgage businesses end up building a big mortgage business. We end up becoming a very big trader in pass-throughs, end up, be, end up doing in mortgages what we've now done in all of our commodities business, what we've done in the emerging markets. We then really have a fixed income currency commodities business run as one business. So we we managed to make that work. We managed to, 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 to cross-pollinate. We, we run them as a business. We no longer have fixed income guys and commodity guys. We now have a, a, a division. 
Um, and, and it's working quite well. As you're right, we, we had some very good markets going on in the mortgage space. We had some very good markets going on in the commodity space. And we were able to capitalize on those things. In the early 2000s, after I would say the dot-com bubble had burst, you know, I was asked to go over and run the equities business. Um, so obviously somebody looked at you and said, hey, this guy's talented. He knows how to run a team. He knows how to manage risk. And he knows how to trade for a profit for a P&L. So clearly your background was well-suited. Yeah. Look, maybe lucky, maybe good. Most likely a combination of both. Right. Never hurts. I, had got- I, I always assume good is table stakes at a place like Goldman. Lucky never hurts. Yeah, I, look, always take. I'll, I'll always accept the good luck. If you want to give me some, I'll take it. So, look, I, I had had a very good track record of building businesses, from rebuilding our commodities business, emerging markets business, mortgage business. You know, I had gone through business by business by business, and 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 help build and help transition them into much more client facing, client friendly. Um, bigger risk-taking businesses, bigger client facilitation businesses, where we had a brand and reputation on the street as the go-to shop in fixed income currency and commodities. Our equities business was really good going into the dot-com crisis. Like, it was a big business. We dominated, dominated. We did a lot of syndicate, ca- a lot of underwriting, a lot of IPOs. We did. And then all of a sudden, that world changed. And that world changed dramatically. And so I was asked to go over to the equities division, and, you know, I, I went in knowing absolutely nothing about the equities world. But look, I had done that. I knew nothing about emerging markets. I knew nothing about mortgages. I knew nothing about government bonds. I knew nothing about anything in that world. <laughs> so I just said, look, it's another learning experience. I'm going to learn about it. And realized that, look, we had one of the most unbelievable capital markets syndicate shops. Like, we could place new issues better than anyone. The problem was the new issue market and calendar was gone. Right. And we had to transition from a new issue capital market syndicate shop to a secondary trading facilitation, one delta derivatives shop. And so I, I went into the equities and with some help of some, some really smart people, we transitioned that business to look much more like we what we had built in the fixed income currencies and commodities business. And that was done in the early, you know, the early 2000s. And then, you know, as, as, as we had, as I had done in other businesses and we had done, you start realizing the synergies between different businesses. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden you realize like the, the one Delta or the equities business, they're trading specific company names but so are the corporate bond guys. The corporate bond guys are trading company names, corporate names, and a lot of the underlying factors that are affecting corporate bond trading are affecting equity trading. So then we decided, look, look, maybe we should put all of these businesses together and create a securities division, and the corporate bond people should sit on the same floor as the equities salespeople, and so they can talk about companies. You know, if you if, if you got something going on in company X, it's not just affecting the equity. It's affecting the converts. It's affecting the preferreds. It's affecting the corporate bonds. And those traders, it, it, when we started, they were in different buildings. They didn't even know who they were. Wow. And so should we put them all on one floor, which we did. And that's how we created the securities division. That, that makes a lot of sense because you would imagine 
everybody is looking at uh, the six blind men describing the elephant. Everybody's seeing a different part, and that intel has to be useful for, for the rest of the floor, whether it was preferred convertibles, corporate bonds, or, or equity. Absolutely. Yeah. Huh. So I, I remember the first time we were on the equity desk and, you know, an equity is getting sold off hard. And I said, I picked up the phone and called, you know, the guy over on the, on the, on the corporate desk desk and said, hey, what's going on in this name? And he said, nothing. Like, you know, no, no, nothing. And then all of a sudden I sat there and think, okay, what, what, we, we need to learn by this. We need to understand. Is this a liquidation of a big position? Right. You know, should we, should we be going out to the market and selling this and getting people into the name? We have to learn by the whole capital structure because it is a capital structure. Hmm, that's really intriguing. And you continue working your way up. You obviously did a, a pretty good job there. You continue working your way up, eventually in 06, becoming appointed president and co-chief operating officer. You end up as a member of the firm's board of directors, as well as chairman of the firm-wide Client and Business Standards Committee. Tell us a little bit about what it was like to get kicked upstairs to the C-suite. So that was 2006. I had, you know, it, it had come after we'd put all the trading businesses together. We now had the securities business, so we had put everything together, which which made a lot of sense. We we had had, had done a, a very good job of that. Um, Hank Paulson had left to go become Treasury Secretary. Right. And all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're, I'm sitting in the executive office floor and you go from sitting on a trading desk where you know exactly what's going on or you think you know exactly what's going on in every market, moment to moment, minute to minute. And all of a sudden you're sitting in an isolated office trying to figure out how to run a big global firm. It's not just a, a, a securities trading business. You've got a big asset management business that you care about. You've got a big banking business that you care about. And you've got a lot more aspects of the company that you care about. So, you know, it, it, it became another moment in time where I sort of take a deep breath and say, okay, how can I contribute most to Goldman Sachs? And I felt like there were a few different unique opportunities at the time. Uh, we did not have the strongest... West Coast um, banking presence. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I saw what some of our competitors were doing. You know, I'll be honest, Morgan Stanley had a really dominant banking presence in, in California and West Coast and Silicon Valley. Mary Meeker yeah. absolutely dominated Yeah, they had space. a dominant position. They really did, and it was hard to deny that. And, you know, every time there was a, a big capital markets deal or a big IPO coming out of there, we were, you know, begging to get to be the number three or the number four or number five. And I said, you know, to the team out there, I said, look, we've got to go build this. This is something I can take on. So, you know, I found niches where I felt like I could contribute to growing the firm, helping the people in the firm, while taking on my responsibilities to really manage the firm and operate the firm on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, my, my number one priority was operating the firm on a day-to-day -day basis, but I felt my, my, my importance to the firm and the way you create clout and the way you create the ability for people to listen to you and follow you at Goldman is you still have to be a revenue leader or near the revenue. 
I don't think you can get disconnected from revenue. You can't be a sit-in-your-office-manager at Goldman, at least in these times. So I want it to be a valuable part of the revenue-driving machine, which also made my ability to manage and drive the organization that much more impactful. So that, That's pretty unusual, isn't it? Typically, when you're in the COO president slot, you have um, subordinates reporting to you from different divisions. It's un- Is it unusual to roll up your sleeves and say, hey, I'm going to help build this out? Or did it just help you better understand what everybody else was doing in the company? I think it helped me better understand. So I spent enormous amount of time on the road. I spent enormous amount of time with our coverage people. I was out seeing clients, you know, as many days of the year as I possibly could. Really? Without, you know, without, you know, sort of putting the firm in, in, in any peril or any jeopardy, making sure the firm was well run, dealing with all the bigger issues of the firm. But I felt the time I spent out of the office, in other locations, in other offices, um, with our senior most people and with their clients was the most valuable thing I could do for the firm. You mentioned Hank Paulson, one of the few people who comes out of the financial crisis, reputation intact. So you're you're president and COO, and what, two, two and a half years later, suddenly the world starts to unravel and everything goes to hell in the handbasket. Although I think Goldman held up better than most, what was that era like for you? You know, look, it was tough. You know, it, it was a tough period in time. You know, you you could see to some extent what was going on. Even though you could see what was going on, there were certain things you couldn't avoid. Um, you know, you, you have certain structures, you have certain securities, you have certain assets on your balance sheet or that you've created, and you can't uncreate them. Even though you said, wow, what, you know, I wish we hadn't done that. Well, when we did it six months or a year ago, different world. It seemed like a rational thing to do, and you're you're sitting there, you're watching, you know, your your, your fellow competitors, whether it be a Bear Stearns or a Lehman Brothers, you know, get in trouble, and and you're watching what's going on, and you're understanding the fragility of an industry. You're understanding that look, you have a lot of the risks that they do, you know, funding a, 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 a institution or funding a bank is really important. As I, as I always used to say to people, you know, these banks or these financial institutions, they don't run out of equity. They run out of liquidity. Mm-hmm. So liquidity becomes such a crucial part of the organization. How can you finance yourself? How can you fund yourself? How can you make sure that you have liquidity? And how can you reassure clients that you have liquidity? And so we at Goldman, as a team, we spent enormous amount of time and we took our best and most important people and said, look, drop what you're doing. Make sure that we are dealing with our own situation and make sure that we are doing everything we possibly can to make sure we have liquidity almost at any cost. What was the date on that? Because for a little context, I want to say the markets peaked sometime October 07, something like that. But really, it didn't feel like they were rolling over till first quarter of, of 08. When, and lots yeah. of competitors were doing a slow bleed yep. and not exactly publicizing it. When did you say, hey, this could get really bad. We need to, we need to be proactive. You know, we went, I don't remember the dates exactly, 
But, you know, we were watching the, the mortgage banks, the mortgage originators. Right. And remember, there were, I think it's about 32 mortgage banks, mortgage originators. They didn't make it through 2008. Right. You know, we had done business with basically almost all of them. They mm-hmm. originated mortgages. They sold them to us. We repackaged them. Sold them to them, everybody. Right. Sold them to everyone. Like, we weren't, we weren't unique. But, you know, just watching what was going on on a day-to-day basis and having conversations with those organizations um, and, and and seeing what was going on and understanding what was going on at the agencies with Fannie and Freddie and understanding what their positions were and understanding what was going on at AIG um, and, and, and understanding what was going on with some of our private equity credit clients. Mm -hmm. You know, I I think there was a seminal moment. I think it was uh, July 4th weekend. Uh, I remember getting a phone call at, uh, you know, like six o'clock at night from a very large private equity firm that, that also ran a big credit fund. And the credit fund had bought a debt security from one of the their private equity's own deals. Uh-oh. And he was reneging on the deal. To on, himself. On, on, he was reneging on the, the debt deal because he couldn't get it funded in the secondary market. Wow. I said, you know you're reneging on your own deal. <laughs> like, this is your paper from a company that you guys own. That was a seminal moment. Right, like, I can That imagine. was a moment where I said, oh, like, the world is changing dramatically right now. When, when, when someone won't fund paper from a, 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 an in-house deal for a major private equity player. So there were, there were moments along the line, you know, and then you get into disputes on what things are worth and certain, you know, really major companies are disputing margin calls because they're disputing what a security is worth. Like I, I never in my career had a major corporate disputed a margin call on what a security is worth. Like it, it really didn't matter. It really was irrelevant. unprecedented. It was unprecedented. It was right. unprecedented. So there were there were a lot of signs along the way that liquidity was getting tighter and tighter, and people were, you know, hoarding liquidity if they had it and protecting it if they didn't have it. And, and, and you know, we as a firm, we were conscientious of this to the point where we actually went out and issued a bunch of debt and equity. Early you know, on. Yeah, we went out and did that big Warren Buffett deal. Yep. So the the Warren Buffett story could yeah. be my favorite story of the whole financial crisis because as much as people said, what, what was it, like a 9% or 11%, it was a big note. Everybody kind of forgets Buffett offered that to Dick Fold and Lehman mm-hmm. months before, and Fold said, no, too expensive. Yeah. It could be the single biggest error of the entire crisis. Yeah. They might still be around. Who knows? Buffett offered it to us in the morning and said, you can let me know by five o'clock tonight. <laughs> and we and and we said, don't worry, we'll be back to you. And all we have to do is get our board together. We got our board together and we said done. And we did a big secondary equity raise around Following it. Following that, I remember you know, that. And, and the only conversation we had from people in the secondary raise is everyone said, well, I would have done the Buffett deal. And I said, the only problem is you're not Warren Buffett. That's right. <laughs> That's exactly right. And and it was one of those moments where, God bless Warren Buffett, yeah. it, it really made a huge difference to everybody. Even though there was more downside yeah. in the equity market, it's, hey, we're not all going to go down the drain. Well, then, then a week or two later, I think it was within a week or two, that's when 
Treasury decided they were going to put TARP money into all the banks, regardless of those that had raised capital or not. And but by the way, I don't disagree with them either. They 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 were trying to infuse capital on the system and, and not and, single out any specific bank, si- which would cause a run. Right. So exactly. yeah, really, uh, it was a it was. You know, I, I'm always reminded of the scene from uh, from Apocalypse Now, where uh, they're surfing. Hey, one day this war is going to end, and it's it's really when you were in that moment, it was really really one of a kind. Um, would all of which leads to the question: Given the breadth of that experience at Goldman, through everything from really the bull market in bonds and equities to the dot com implosion to the financial crisis. How did that experience set you up to become a leader in the public sector? So a lot of those skills are very transferable. You know, my job at Goldman, net-net when you boil it down, was dealing with crisis or opportunity. Every day, and by the way, most days I was dealing with both. You know, and, and, and some opportunities became crises and some crises became opportunities. So I, I, I considered myself to be in the crisis management or opportunity management business because when you're running a very large balance sheet globally with lots of people committing capital and lots of people making promises or commitments or underwritings, you're going to have problems. It's just the nature of the business. Um, no matter how well-intentioned people are, there's going to be mistakes and clients are going to get unhappy and, and, and you just have to deal with them. So, you know, having spent the last almost 11 years of my life at Goldman and I'd done it before being a, a crisis manager. And that's really what I did. It was a crisis manager trying to look for opportunity. You know, I think it pre- prepared me well to go into the government because I, I was always trying to figure out how do we create a solution? How do we create something that works? What is the compromise? What is the way out of this situation? Is there, there Because there's a way out of every situation. So you know, I let, never believed there wasn't a way out of a situation. So, so let's break that down. Before we spend a little time in the public sector, um, let's stay with crisis management. Because I kind of get the sense, reading your background, you created a, I don't want to say formulas to, is probably overstating it, but you seem to have created a structure where every time there's a crisis, you followed a few s- specific steps. So crisis shows up on your desk. What What is the Gary Cohn three or five step response? Uh, what's the playbook? I, I don't know if there's a playbook because- they're all different. They're but, all different. I, but there's I, some themes that seem to be consistent. As I used to always say is, you know, we at Goldman, we're, we're very creative in the problems we have. We'll never usually have the same problem twice because mm-hmm. we're, we're really good at fixing the last problem we had. We're not good at we're, we're not as good as anticipating the next problem, but we're good at fixing the last problem. OK, so, so in, in my I'm going to interrupt you and say yeah. in my research. Mm-hmm. Into you, one of the things, and some of the speak, people I spoke with, Gary will own the problem, yep. apologize for yep. it. Here's what we're going to do to fix yep. what took place, and here's how we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. That's what I was referring to. Okay. Did am I putting words in your mouth, yeah, or is no, that no. fair? You're not. You're not putting words in my mouth at all. So, look, I always believe you have to own the problem. I mean, ownership is is ninety percent of the battle. Mm-hmm. You know, I I never had a problem. Where I, did, where I would say it's not my problem. Because if you're the chief operating officer, the president of Goldman Sachs, every problem is your problem. <laughs> yes. It is. It's it's my problem. 
It's my problem, and it's and, and it's my job to make sure it gets solved. So, a, I would always start with ownership. B, I would always need the facts. So, you know, if you really want to go through the chronology of a, of a problem, you know, okay, problem arises. Number one, get all of the facts into the room. Try and agree upon the facts. You know, one of the hardest things sometimes is agree upon the facts. Mm-hmm. You know, and in 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 my job was to sift through the facts and sit not just sift through the facts from my my team's perspective i needed to talk to the other side if there wasn't other side you know i need i needed both sides of the opinion and and i always trusted you know in in the words of ronald reagan trust but verify you've got to trust but verify everything so go through it understand the facts understand what what happened own the problem Try and fix the problem and, and, and be realistic. And, and, and I always thought if I go to the people and tell them exactly what happened, tell them the truth, tell them how we're going to rectify it, 95% of the time it's going to solve the problem because really people understand there's going to be problems. They just want to understand what actually really happened. They and everybody wanna, walks away happy after Yeah, that. look, they, they walk away as happy as they can. Right. I don't, I don't want to sit here and tell you, oh, yeah, every time people walked away happy. They walk away as happy as they, they walk away. How about this? They walk away satisfied. Right. Well, these are complex problems with big money involved. Mm-hmm. And occasionally people are going to argue about, hey, who has this loss or who has this um, profit? And sometimes that leads to disputes. Yeah. If, it, if it's just a loss, if it's just money, sometimes those are easy to cure. Right. I, I don't want to be cavalier, but if it, you know, if it's just a money problem, it's, it's sometimes not a big deal. It's like a deal can't get done. And someone blames someone for something. Okay, now we got a problem. Now you got personality and ego and right. turf wars and, and everything and, and, else. And, and why can't the deal get done? And now people are, are pointing fingers. Well, the deal can't get done because this happened. You didn't do this or you did do this or you shouldn't have done this. And now all of a sudden it's like, okay, now I like money's not going to solve the problem. I've got to get people back to a position, understand why the deal can't get done. Maybe the deal never could have gotten done. Maybe mm-hmm. someone just never explained to the client. Maybe, maybe, maybe they told the client things that they just wanted to hear, mm-hmm. which is, which again, I have to own that and say, look, my team didn't do a good job. My team should have told you six weeks ago, this couldn't get done, or this wasn't going to get done, or for this to get done, these five things had to happen, and none of these five things happened. So I don't really think of COO as a fixer, but really, what you're saying is. You're a free safety, and anything that could go awry, you're on top. You have to be responsible for. I think in a firm like Goldman Sachs, you have to. Mm-hmm. You have to. When you're in a transactionally driven business, where your clients are depending upon you for advice, capital, and and really the future of their company in many respects, you have to as as, as a senior person, you have to you know be there as the free safety and help make sure you guide these things to, to the to the softest landing you can, if, if and when there's a problem. Now, the, the good news is the vast majority of the time, these things just run their course and the teams are so good that they all happen by themselves. You're there for the, for the ones that, that aren't self-repairing. Exactly. Really intriguing. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. 
Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So let's talk a little bit about that period. Uh, your chief economic advisor to the president, uh, you managed the administration's uh, economic policy agenda, and you spearhead the Wage and Tax Reform Act, which was uh, a substantial uh, policy success in the Trump White House and a pretty substantial rejiggering of the tax code, emphasizing small businesses, LLCs. Tell us a little bit about what was life like in the White House. Well, life in the White House is fascinating. Um, it was probably, of, of all the things I've done in my career, the most fascinating experience I've had. And, I, and I'm very thankful that I had the opportunity, very thankful that I did it. Um, you know, Wall Street is a, is a good preparatory class, for Washington, you know, it's it's long, arduous days, mm-hmm. um, which are which you're used to. You know, my my day was 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 pretty simple in many respects and pretty chaotic in other respects, but no different than a day at, at Goldman Sachs. You know, I used to say my days at Goldman Sachs is about twenty percent of it. I have an idea what's going to happen. About eighty <laughs> percent, I have no idea, and I just hope and pray it's not too crazy. And I would say the White House was pretty similar. Mm-hmm. About 20% of the day, I sort of had an idea what was going to happen. And the rest of the day, we were going to deal with the issues or the problems or the opportunities of the day. Uh, you know, my days would start early in the morning with the presidential daily brief. The CIA would come in and brief and, you know, you'd see what CIA co- comes in and brief. That that. So I imagine at Goldman you have great business intel. What's it like getting briefed by by the spooks? It's it's pretty interesting. I yeah. mean, look, we've, we, we've got a... Um, We've got a really interesting, you know, intelligence network around the world, and mm-hmm. it's their job to make sure those of us discussing policy in the White House have the information we need, and that we all have the same information. And so there's a a group of us that get the the, the daily brief, and you know, 
you can get it, you know, I think most of us got it fairly early in the morning mm -hmm. and you can get it when you want. And so I used to start my day with it uh, early in the morning and uh, that was how I started. Then, you know, I would go from there to the most of the uh, chiefs of staff would have a staff meeting in the morning. Um, so the, the, the senior White House people would get together in the morning around 8 a.m. or so, 7.30 or 8, discuss the issues for the day, discuss the opportunities for the day, discuss the messaging for the day. You know, you get done with that. Then I'd have my staff meeting around 9 o'clock or whenever the senior staff meeting was over. You know, I relay to my staff what the messages for the day. We would discuss what problems we're working on. Um, and, and then we would go into our more, you know, day-to-day -day agenda, depending on what we were working on from a policy standpoint. We spent a lot of time up on Capitol Hill, uh, working with various members of different committees, both in the House and the Senate, because at the end of the day, you know, a lot of what we're trying to do is get legislation done. Mm -hmm. as, as we know, it takes 60 in, 60 in the Senate, 235 in the House, and a presidential signature. Uh, there's ways around that during reconciliation for budget bills and things like that. But the overall legislation, you know, you're, you're trying to do regular way or normal way, and, and you're working on trying to get legislation done. And... You know, I think it's the, the, the job of the White House to drive normal way process legislation, working with um, either majority or minority leaders in the Senate or, 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 or in the House. Uh, you have a really intricate working relationship with them um, on their agenda. And, you know, they have a pretty good idea who stands where on what piece of the legislation. So we're attacking you know, the, the, the various uh, constituents on, on who needs time, who needs effort, who needs persuasion. They have the head count. You know who to go to. Who needs hand-holding, who, who, who's solidly in your camp, who's solidly against you, who's on the fence. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's sort of a typical day, but intertwined in there, you're at the beck and call of the president. Mm -hmm. And the president, you know, can decide at any moment of the day, basically, he wants you. Tear up the script and go yeah, this way. He wants you in the Oval Office. He wants you at some meeting. He wants you involved in something. And like, you know, at a Goldman Sachs, your entire calendar, your entire schedule can get, you know, blown up in 30 seconds or less. And that's, that's what, it, that's the way it works. And, you know, one of my, I, I think one of my, important attributes is, you know, I made sure that I sat down with the president every day. Um, you know, I sort of knew the times of the day to go in and see him. And I tried to spend, you know, an hour or so a day alone when he wasn't distracted with other people coming in and out and right. say, hey, look, this is what we're trying to get done. Here's where we are. What are your thoughts? You know, you okay with where we're going? Because, you know, you always want to be on the same page as the <laughs> ultimate decision maker. To, to say the least. So let's talk about probably the biggest economic um, legislative success of the entire administration, the, the TCJA. Yep. Um, tell us a little bit about how this came together, how the parameters were formed, um, who was really driving the different aspects of that. It, it, it's really a fairly comprehensive package and very different than previous tax cuts that yeah. were just, hey, we're just going to play around with the different rates. So it, it's very comprehensive. We started on that plan 
in December of 16. So I had agreed to join the administration sort of beginning of December of 16. And by the middle of December, we're already starting to talk about taxes. We know that we want to get taxed. And like one of the reasons I went into this job was taxes. I felt that we had a tax policy in the United States that was hindering growth and deterring U.S. corporations from investing in the United States and penalizing them to do things that they actually wanted to do that were positive for the U.S. economy and positive for U.S. jobs. And to me, I felt this was a huge opportunity and there was an opportunity to fix this. And and let me just remind everyone of the timeline. So the election, November 2016, December of that year, you're teeing it up. President sworn in January 20th, and you're hitting the ground running. We're hitting the ground running already in December. So by December, me and and other members of the team, uh, at this point, it's a large team, you know, like like everything. It's a large team because everyone wants to be involved. Did you bring people over from Goldman with you? No, I didn't bring any. You stood up a brand new team. I didn't. I stood up a brand new team. Look, the first thing I did, let, let, let me back up because this is really important. Mm-hmm. The first thing I did when I accepted the, the, the NEC head job is I went out and I hired a world-class, and I mean a world-class team of experts. Mm-hmm. And, and I looked at it like this is Goldman Sachs. Like I need the best people in the world in each of the roles. And the NEC job is really interesting because it touches the broadest spectrum of economic policy. And, and feel free to name drop. Who'd you, who'd you stand up with that group? No, like, like I went out and hired Jeremy Katz to be my deputy. You know, mm-hmm. Jeremy was amazing. He'd worked in the White House before. He really knew the right people to go out and hire. He understood the roles. He understood what could get done and what couldn't get done. He knew that I really wanted to get taxes done. He told me, look, there's a woman by the name of Shahira Knight. You've got to go out and hire Shahira. If you want to get taxes done, like Shahira is your person. We went out. We got Shahira hired. You know, but then you've got to go out and hire people in the healthcare space. You've got to go out and hire people in the energy space. You've got to go hire people in the technology space. You've got to go out and hire people in the agricultural space. Jeremy knew all those people to hire. He went out, he brought me in the best people ever. And it was it was kind of interesting to me because it was interesting and really rewarding because you know Jeremy would bring these people in, he'd do the first and second round interviews. Um, and then I'd meet him and Jeremy says, look, you got to meet these people. They want to meet you before they come to work for you. And I would sit down and talk to him and they were all amazing. They were amazingly talented. And I would sit there and go, guys, look, I desperately want you to come do this job. You're leaving a big, huge, high paying job. You know, I can't offer you a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> they used to laugh and they go, yeah, we, we, we know you can't, but look, we believe in you. We believe in the country. We want to serve. And it's amazing how many great people were willing to serve. And you let know, me jump in here and just point out, there have been criticisms about uh, some Trump appointees and and some of the process. The NEC's reputation was really quite stellar. I, I, had, I had a world-class team. I'd put that team up against anyone. You know, I also had, you know, my, my chief of staff, my chief of communications, Ashley Hickey. She, she was over-the-top amazing. I mean, she was one of the two assistants that sat outside of George Bush's office. She left there. She became a crisis communications expert. She 
worked on some of the most, you know, known crisis communication issues. She also knew Washington in and out. She helped me go out and get all the right people. And, and because they knew the way the system worked, and I didn't, I was an outsider. They were able to guide me on who to hire, how to hire them, and how to have impact. Because, you know, it, it, it it's one of the most phenomenally interesting things we go through in the country that we don't really talk about. We talk about the peaceful transition of power. Mm -hmm. The peaceful transition of power, if you think about it, we don't have time to go through this, but at 11.59.59 on January 20th, the old administration walks out of the West Wing and walks out of the White House. And at 12, at 12 o'clock on the dot, the new team can walk in. Much of the new team has never met each other. They've never seen each other. They don't know who they are. And we all walk into the West Wing or we walk into the old executive office building, depending on where your office is, and we start working together as a team, not even knowing each other's name, not knowing what we do, not knowing our background. It's phenomenally interesting. So you have to know people or you have to bring people on your team that can help you lead. And without Ashley, without Jeremy, I couldn't have got any of these things done. I mean, I really couldn't have. And, and most of the other people that they had me hire had been in the executive branch once before in their life. So I had a huge competitive advantage over a bunch of the other people that, that were in there. So, so let's talk about that advantage and let's use the TCJA as, as our example. How does that come together? How do the different major policy posts come through? Does this start at the White House? Um, does it start with POTUS? Or do you go to the president and say, here's what we think we could get through Congress? T tell us how this well, begins and how does it get shepherded? So, so tax is really unique. So the reason I accepted the job is because of tax reform. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the president-elect at the time we were starting this, and then the president knew that that was one of my big targets. So we had talked about it. Steve Mnuchin and I had talked about it. But at the time we started down tax reform, the House was starting down tax reform. Paul Ryan was a big tax guy. So Brady and Ryan, they were heading down their own path on what they thought tax reform should look like. But very different. It was really rate-focused, if I remember, right? No, no. So Brady and Ryan were in a completely different place than we in the, they were in a border adjusted tax. Uh -huh. I mean, they wanted to do a border adjusted tax system. We in the White House did not want to do a border adjusted tax and system. And define that, because I know you're very much a free trade advocate. I am a free trade advocate. Uh, tell us how this conflict comes into play. Well, basically a border adjusted tax is you tax things at the border mm -hmm. to, to equalize them. We felt that border adjustment tax had a really negative impact on sort of harder working um, middle class Americans, people that shop at the at the big box retailers and the Walmarts because they import a lot of their goods. Those goods would be taxed at the border. Walmart, Costco, Target, yeah, exactly. Everything would be twenty five percent more. Everything would be twenty. They would put a twenty five percent border right. adjustment tax on them. It's a giant number. It's a giant number. We felt it was it was really a, progr a progressive tax. A re I'm sorry, a regressive, regressive. tax. It was. It was a regressive tax. We did not see that is is making sense to us. Um, so our initial meetings were between you know 
those of us coming into the White House and the House. And, and, and we went down every Monday night in December and January prior to inauguration. And Speaker Ryan held a meeting in his conference room. And we had, you know, buffet dinners in there. And we were hashing out these, these thoughts. Now, ultimately, it came that the Senate was not going to do a border adjustment tax. Not surprising. So, right. But we had to get to the point where, you know, the House and, 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 and Brady and, and Ryan, who were, who were really two good tax experts who spent an enormous amount of time on tax, had to give up on what they thought was their primary plan. I think by the time we got into inauguration in January, it was clear that border adjustment was not going to be the overall plan. So now we start going back to what can we all agree upon? And this to me is no different than any other deal I'd ever worked upon. Okay, let's not try and solve the hard issues. Let's try and figure out what we all can agree upon. And so issue by issue, we all started deciding what we were trying to achieve and what we were deciding to, we could agree upon. And you, know, as with everything, when we started, A, it was pre-inauguration, so people didn't have a lot to do, so there were lots of people in the room. As we got farther down the path, people had things to do, people realized this was gonna be a longer process, this was gonna be an arduous process, you know, less people started showing up to the meetings. And we started getting to the real core group of people that knew what they were doing. We ended up with what they call the, the group of six, the group of six that was, you know, two from the House, two from the Senate, and Mnuchin and I from the, from the White House. Um, so the big six became the big six of, of we're going to sit down and we're going to hash out what we think tax policy should look like, and then we're going to work from there. So is this very typical to have this smaller group representing House, Senate, and White House? Because that's a lot of firepower in one room. It, it's it's not typical. And, and, you know, I give Brady and I give Ryan enormous amount of credit for handling the Ways and Means Committee because technically tax legislation is supposed right. to start in the Ways and Means Committee. The Ways and Means Committee is a very large committee. Well, start... Uh, I don't know if that's the right word, or or at least they get handed the football at a certain. Well, technically, in the in the real world, if you if you read the little definition, mm -hmm. the Ways and Means Committee is where all tax legislation needs to start. Now, ultimately, we handed them the football. They made some minor changes, and it progressed. So. Tax legislation has to start in the House. It has to start in the Ways, Ways and Means Committee. The six of us got to a place where we had enough agreement on where to go, what we thought the basic fundamentals were, um, that we then, you know, that, that Brady and Ryan could then handle the Ways and Means Committee. We could get the Ways and Means Committee involved. We got them actively involved. And ultimately, we got a piece of legislation through the House. Now, I don't want to say this in the wrong way, but the House wasn't the, the, the tougher piece. You know, the, the Republicans had a House majority. They had a decent majority. Um, and we thought that we would get to the requisite 
235 votes to get through the House a piece of tax legislation. Like, now, like herding cats, though, right? Like herding cats. Now, look, there were some controversial things in there, as we all know, the 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 salt deduction for sure was a issue that people on both sides of the aisle had a difficult time dealing with if you're a northern new jersey republican feels punitive you, you weren't happy yeah. having to vote for that or even if you're a, a, a new york state republican from westchester it's a tough vote for mm-hmm. you to make um there were a bunch of major corporate changes uh, the deemed repatriation, which was one of the things that I thought was really important, like the White House, Steve Mnuchin, I thought was really important. So define that for listeners. So Describe corporate repatriation. We had a— Because this was a very big deal. A huge, huge deal. So we, we had a tax system prior to JCT where, as a U.S.-based taxpayer, if you were earning money offshore— as long as you left your money offshore, you did not pay U.S. taxes. The minute you brought it back into the U.S., you had to pay taxes. Which, by the way, is very different from you and I as individuals. Yes. If we're U.S. citizens and I'm earning my money overseas, I'm still paying You're taxes. You're still paying taxes. So it almost forced large U.S. companies to bring to leave their money offshore. It, 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 and when you're forcing U.S. companies to leave their money offshore, you're actually forcing them to make capital investment offshore, right. build factories offshore, hire people offshore, which to me was the complete wrong incentive. We wanted people to bring their money back onshore. So we said— in, to, to, to clarify, bring it back here, build factories, hire people, invest here in the U.S. Correct. And, and what was the change in tax rates so, versus had it been earned here in the U.S.? So it, it was not necessarily a tax rate issue. It was just an avoidance of tax. If I never bring it back, right. I don't pay the tax. So how did this change? So what we did, What was the incentive to have them bring it back? So what we did is we said, okay, you can leave your money offshore. We're going to just deem it to have been repatriated. So we don't care where you leave your money. We're gonna we're gonna give you five years to pay the taxes on the offshore money. So over the next five years, you're gonna have to pay all of the taxes that you would have paid, assuming you would have brought back all your money, and all your foreign earnings are gonna be taxed as if they were earned in the United States. So that's the stick. Tell us about the carrot. Well, we gave lots of carrots. We gave lots of carrots, we gave lots of credits, we gave lots of incentives. And we gave lots of different ways for people to move their money in a way. But the ways that we gave carrots was we wanted you to invest in the United States where possible. And we wanted you and we forced you to repatriate your earnings back to the United States. So we gave you huge R&D credits. We gave you huge credits to build factories in the United States. We gave you credits to hire people. We gave you credits for everything we could, but we deemed you to have your worldwide earnings come back to the United States. And approximately how much capital would you guess return to the U.S.? Well, lots of it. I mean, trillions, trillions, measured in trillions. Like, I don't want to call out companies by themselves, but look, Apple was very clear. Apple was one of the largest holders of offshore capital. And to Tim Cook's credit, he brought back money almost instantly. And he said, he said why our legislation is, look, if this legislation passes, I will just bring back my money. I will pay the taxes. I understand what you're doing. This 
No. Makes sense. We had pretty good support from the corporate community on on repatriation. And so we, we, we did things like that where we said, look, you can no longer just hide your money in, in, in foreign countries. Right. You're a U.S.-based company. You're a U.S. taxpayer. You're going you're gonna to have deemed to have brought your money back. We don't want you to be incentivized to, to spend your money offshore and, and build property, plant, and equipment offshore. So let's talk about two of the other big factors in the TCGA. Uh, one was the shifting of the rates, and the other was the LLC pass-throughs, which yep. really was a huge structural change. Rates are pretty easy. Rates came down. The top rates came down. Everything else kind of got rejiggered a little bit. Top, top rates came down, but that 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 helped. If you looked at the distribution, it helped the bottom two thirds of the distribution. Top rates came down for everyone. But the, the, the thing that we did to correct that is we got rid of the largest loophole that exists in the tax code, which, is? which was the SALT deduction. Mm-hmm. So the wealthier people in the top tax rates, they were subtracting from their income. They were subtracting their state tax. They were right. subtracting their state income tax. Mortgage they were subtracting their, their, their mortgage deduction. They were they were subtracting real estate taxes. They were so they were lowering the amount of income that they taxed. So my basic premise, and I think this is good tax policy, is lower the rate, broaden the base. So we were trying to broaden the base. We were trying to say, look, we're going to stop having you deduct all these things from your income. We're going to say your income is your income, but we're going to charge you a smaller rate on your income. That's we the tried trade-off. to simplify the whole tax return. If you remember, there was times when you know the president said, "It's so simple, you can do it on the back of an envelope. We can we can have a tax return that you can do a on, feeling, on a card." I have a feeling you you don't file on the back of an envelope. I do not. Neither file do on, I. Yeah, I I don't follow on. I can't even get on a sheet of paper. So so let's talk about the other one. And I will admit, so, so, at the time of the salt deduction going away. I cursed you, I cursed the president, and then I started reading about this LLC pass-through. Right. And my business is an LLC, and I'm like, oh, so wait a second, let's talk about this. Who created that concept? That's a giant shift in the way we tax small businesses. So here's always a big debate when you get down to doing taxes in the United States. So we have a corporate rate, and then we have a rate for... LLCs are pass-throughs, and LLCs and pass-throughs can be very large companies that are not corporates. We have some very, very large pass-through companies in, Partnerships, in the Partnerships, law firms, accounting firms, go down the list. Venture capital We have firms. Some, some even larger, mm-hmm. major trading companies, major retail companies that are LLCs or pass-through companies. So you have this debate about the fairness between the corporate tax rate and the LLC or non-corporate tax rate. And how do you make sure there's not an arbitrage in there? Mm -hmm. So you're an LLC, but if I lower the corporate tax rate low enough, you'll just become a corporation and you'll pay your corporate tax rate and then you'll find that you'll find ways ultimately to to run your business through a corporation because you'll tax incentivize. So we were trying to create a level playing field for LLCs, uh, or or and, and look, 
it still is to this day, the vast, vast majority of LLCs in this country are small small family businesses and, and small businesses. So we wanted small businesses to be taxed at a favorable rate. We want to incentivize small businesses. We wanted small businesses to grow. We wanted them to hire more people. So we created ways for LLC income and different amounts of income and income below certain threshold to be taxed at a preferential rate to allow LLCs to be very competitive and more competitive than corporations if you were a small LLC. So we're telling you if, if you're a small business person today, your LLC structure should be incentivizing for you to grow your business and stay in an LLC. You don't need to become a corporation to take advantage of a tax code. And I, I have a vivid recollection of New York State reaching out to the IRS and saying, we want to clarify what our rules can be with LLC. And the IRS said, yes, you can do this, you can do that. And then New York State disseminated new information, and then California, and then Illinois, and then it just cascaded. And suddenly, a lot of blue states, or at least small business owners in blue states, that were complaining about the SALT deduction going away, suddenly like, hey, this is not the worst thing that happened here with this tax code. How long did it take before people realized this is a, a really substantial change to small business? Because the pushback on SALT was pretty fierce. Yeah, look, I, I don't know. The political rhetoric today is still pretty high on the JCTA, that it was a tax cut for the rich. I think the data does not tell you that. And if you look at the, the tax revenues collected in absolute dollars and you look at tax revenue collected as a percentage of GDP, it would tell you that the 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 code actually worked pretty well and has done well to incentivize people to grow businesses, hire people, and pay taxes. I don't see it as a tax cut on the rich. You and I were talking before. Most of our friends are probably paying more taxes today than they were because they lost their large deductions by living in New York City, New York State, by living in New Jersey. Anyone lives in California it's clearly not a tax cut for them. It, it, it really changes from industry to industry. The biggest issue is normally, so you pass something in 2017, it goes into effect 2018, and then you get five years of data and say, let's look at how this worked. Uh, we had that little snafu we in have, 2020. Yeah, that we have kinda, some screwy data. We have some so, screwy so data. So it's, it's still a little difficult to conclusively say where this was, but there's some sense of, of the trend this yeah. was moving in. We have some screwy data, but even with the screwy data, I would agree with you. The trend is that tax receipts and tax revenue have far exceeded all of the forecasted assumptions and all of the 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 views that were 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 stated when we were passing the legislation. All of the scaremongering that went on when we were passing the legislation, how this was a tax cut for the rich and tax receipts are going down dramatically, has been unfounded. And many states that follow the federal government and get rid of the SALT tax deduction, many of those states have found themselves in a huge surplus situation and they have lowered their tax rates because they have 
they have ample supply of tax revenue coming in by getting rid of the deduction. So I think, you know, it's going to be impossible to say for sure because of, of what happened in COVID. But I think the overwhelming data has been that the JCTA has done exactly what we said it would do. And this is going to come up for renewal in a couple of years. The uh, end of 25. So, so now the, not, not the corporate side. The personal side comes up at the end of 25. So here's the question. I mean, it's impossible to forecast this sort of thing. Do we think that this is likely to be renewed, or is there something else coming? And really the answer to that question is, what happens in 2024? I, I think there it's a bit what happens in 2024. But if you put a gun to my head today, I would think that 95% of that tax code is getting renewed. Really? Yeah. That That's quite fascinating. So I, we've spent a lot of time. It's, it's actually worked. Uh, to, you know, to a large uh, degree. Uh, unfortunately. I, by the way, I know I'm going to get pushback on the data. Well, the tax code showed this. And if yeah. you look at it this way, the numbers yeah. are that. So there's still some debate on the numbers. But by and large, you're satisfied with, with the results of it. I'm satisfied with the results. And, and you think it had a positive impact on the economy. I think it's had a positive impact on the economy. I think it has a positive impact on having the money repatriated. When you talk about, people are talking about people building plants in the United States. People are talking about us re-domiciling our supply chain. Semiconductors, A lot of this is happening because companies were, they weren't forced, but they got taxed on the money offshore anyways. So when they brought it it back, it was easy for them to spend it back in the United States. So a lot of the effect people are seeing, they have to understand the cause. The cause was, okay, that money had to come back. It didn't have to come back. That money was being taxed anyways. So once it's being taxed and I'm bringing it back onshore, well, I can spend it to build a factory in the United States. I can spend it to modernize these things. So I think when we look back at this with enough years of data, with the COVID blip being a blip, not not that it's a blip, it's a blip it, in tax it was terms. a couple of years in, yeah. in tax terms, yeah. for sure. I, I think that we'll say, hey, this tax plan worked pretty well. Safe to say this is your most satisfying accomplishment uh, in in the public servants space, a- absolutely, huh, absolutely, really? it was a hundred. It basically occupied, I would say, the vast, vast majority of my time for about three hundred and sixty-five days. So, really, two thirds. We, we, of your we signed time it then. December twenty-second at twelve noon mm-hmm. on and and seventeen, and I started working on it in December of sixteen. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So, so literally for about 365 days straight, my mind was thinking tax code, tax code, tax code, tax code. Huh. Let's talk a little bit about what's going on in the world today. I want to talk about technology, but first we, we have to talk about what's arguably the most aggressive tightening cycle in Federal Reserve history. What, what's going on in the world of interest rates and Fed funds? Well, I think you just said it. We're going through the most aggressive tightening cycle we've seen. Um, you know, I, I think, unfortunately, the Fed was late to the game. But, but aren't they always? Yeah, and they're going to stay too long. You know, right. it's right. always they come late to the party, and they they're the last ones to come, and the first and, and, and the last ones to leave. I guess that's what they are. Um, but but the question to me is is more broad than that right now. You know, the Fed has has, has tightened interest rates quite considerably. And we all know there's a lag effect, mm -hmm. you know, and so the first raises they have now, we're we're a year or so into that cycle. March 2022, so yep. we're we're 18 months out. Yeah, we're a year plus into the, into that cycle. We don't know what the full impact of these raises is, so that's number one. So for the Fed to keep going, I would be concerned. Now I I think we all believe that the Fed maybe has one more 25. I would potentially hope they'd have no more 25s because I'm with you. I'm not even sure what the effect is of the raising the rates and a longer discussion about Fed policy and how effective it's been over the last two decades. Mm -hmm. But I'm not going to go there right now. Um, what's more interesting, in, in, in my opinion, is what the Fed's been trying to do by raising rates and slowing down the economy, slowing down employment growth, so far we have not seen that. We really have seen, we've seen a little bit of job creation slow down if you look at the JOLTS data. Mm -hmm. But we really, we've seen a little bit of a tiny minuscule pickup in unemployment, but that seems more like it's people coming back to the job market because savings is starting to dry up. Right. A lot of wage gains are slowing. Wage Real estate still still having a little issue. Still having a little issue, but we're still pretty much at full employment. Mm -hmm. We're still having wage gains overall. And I think what we're seeing, and in, 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 in I think what we all have to figure in here, is we've never gone through a cycle where the Federal Reserve is tightening with one hand and the federal government is spending with the other hand. Right. 
And so as much as the Federal Reserve is tightening, the federal government continues to spend. They continue to have money to spend on infrastructure. They continue to have money to spend on the Inflation Reduction Act. They continue to have money to spend on chips. They keep rewarding big contracts. These big contracts are going to continue to put demands into the labor market. So I'm not sure we're slowing the labor market down anytime soon. What we're probably slowing down is the housing market. Mm-hmm. So if we slow down housing market because it becomes expensive to borrow money, are we just keeping housing inflation high? Mm-hmm. I don't really know. But we're at a different time in our history where the real impacts, even if they're lagged, I'm not sure they're as meaningful as they once were. And, and to put a little flesh on the environment that the CHIPS Act, the Inflation Act, and the Infrastructure Act came into— the first CARES Act, $2.2 trillion. The second CARES Act, $800 or $900 billion. The third CARES Act, this one under Biden, another $800 or $900 yeah. billion. So that pig is barely through the python before all of these 10-year programs really hit the ground. So there's going to be an ongoing fiscal stimulus even as the monetary stimulus comes off. Yeah. Look, the, the most obvious way to look at this is we're coming up on the end of the fiscal year. Mm-hmm. We're going to have a, a two trillion dollar deficit for the year, you know. And it wasn't that receipts were that much lower this year. Now they were a little bit lower. Stock market performed poorly last year, mm-hmm. so you didn't see the capital gains. But the government just continues to spend. It continues to spend on all these programs. If the government's continuing to spend, and the government's continuing to spend on things that need human capital. It doesn't matter in many respects how tight monetary policy becomes. We're going to continue to hire people. We're just going to continue to pay more to get the people. Mm-hmm. And so I, I would like the Federal Reserve to stop. I would like the Federal Reserve to take a deep breath. You know, right now in the tightening cycle, we've almost seen more damage in the regional banks than we have seen help for the U.S. economy. Mm-hmm. To, to say the very least, we saw a huge disruption, whether it was Silver Lake or Silicon Valley Bank or going down the list of regional banks that got disrupted, to say nothing of the healthy banks that people got nervous and moved to big money centers. Well, and not only that, because of what happened in the regional banks, we now have a Federal Reserve that thinks that banks need more capital. So we're going to put more capital into the the biggest banks, the, the G-SIFIs and the SIFIs. Mm-hmm. They don't need more capital. But the knee-jerk reaction to anything negative that ever happens in the banking sector is, oh, we need more capital. But by the way, capital doesn't prevent a bank run. You can have all the capital in the world. You, 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 you can have it all. If there's a bank run, capital doesn't provide your depositors liquidity. Does it do anything to raise rates on the one hand and then flood the system with capital on the other? Aren't these sort of competing monetary functions? Well, it it competes because as banks have to raise more capital, it just means they're going to lend out less money. They're going to take the balance sheet they have right now, and they're going to hold more capital, and they're going to lend out less. So they're not going to go raise additional capital, per se. They're going to take the money that they have on their accounts, and they're going to say, okay, this is now capital sitting in my capital account. I'm no longer going to use it as as a way to fund growth to my to my clients where they be. So that'll slow clients. that'll slow the economy even we'll more. Slow the economy. So if you were gonna have lunch with Jerome Powell, what would you say to him? 
I would say I think you've done enough. I, I, I think we've got a set of unique circumstances that your historical economists and your historical textbooks don't really account for. I think you need to let this work through the system. The federal government has already um, more or less appropriated these funds. They need to go out and spend them. They're going to go out and spend them. They're going to continue to keep demanding labor, whether it's labor to be bridges and tunnels or, or power grids or charging stations. There's so many things where we're going to need labor to build that no matter how high you take interest rates, it's not going to stop that infrastructure build. It's just going to make it more expensive. Let the system normalize and see where we end up. Now, your higher rates are going to have some effect. They're going to have some unintended consequences. We've seen them already. I, I would say, look, it's, it's time to take a deep breath. You know, inflation is going to be where it is. When inflation was zero and you went to zero interest rates and you went to QE, you couldn't affect it there either. Right, couldn't hit so that 2% idea, target. This idea that you're going to zero it in on your 2% target I just don't think you can do it. I think you're going to have to take much longer looks and you're going to have to look at wider windows of evaluation. So, and, and, and Jerome Powell said this, look, I give him credit. He said, look, we're going to try and get 2% through the cycle. Well, maybe the cycle has to be a much longer cycle. So if huh. we're if we're 6% for a while and we're 0% for a while, you know, maybe we're averaging three. Huh, really interesting. You mentioned something that really struck a chord with me, and I have to ask about it. Uh, the cost of financing everything now, whether it's corporate pro- uh, projects or the federal debt, is much higher. Uh, did we miss a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to refinance federal debt with long-term bonds in the mid-2010s? I mean, when rates were nothing, there was a lot of appetite for 30- or even 50-year treasuries. Uh, how I, And I was told at the time— That'll just encourage more spending. But was the trader in you, was that a great opportunity or or what? In the first conversation I ever had with then-President-elect Trump, when I was going through my views of the economy, I said, look, my number one concern would be the dollar and the debt. And if I were you, I would go out and replace all of our debt with 50 and 100-year debt. 50 and 100-year debt. 50 and 100-year debt. Uh huh. And what was the response to that? He said, "That's a great idea. Can can we do that? Why I not?" Said, I said, "Sure." I said, "Treasury can." I said, "Treasury can issue whatever they want to issue." I said, "I would I would extend maturities on forever." I said, "Same thing I would tell a corporate client if they could do it. Go Absolutely. go go issue fifteen hundred your debt now." And by the way, most of the American corporations did exactly that. Yeah. Well, they went as long as they could. Extend maturities when you're in a when you're in a very low interest rate cycle and you know you're going to need it. Why did that not get off the ground? It's such a brilliant thing to do yeah, uh, and, to a company. And, and today we're to 30, $33 trillion of debt as of, I think, Monday. So so why did that go nowhere? I don't know. All right. You that's know, that's to, a fair. You just you, you push these things as far as you can push them, and, and, and you just go. I mean, to me as a trader, the it's the obvious thing to do, but- Washington doesn't necessarily think yeah. like traders. Look, I, I, I'm not blaming anyone for this. Like these things just happen. But you know, at the end of the day, the White House doesn't borrow the money. Right. It's delegated out to to Treasury and and Congress know, has to Cong- it. Treasury Borrowing Committee. You got lots of people 
smarter than me, putting in inputs on uh, on how to do it, and you know they they decide what maturities to go to, and they tend to do what they've been doing for the last two hundred years. Right. All right, so let's talk a little bit about technology. Um, you've become a fairly big investor across things like cybersecurity, blockchain infrastructure, AI. Tell us what you're seeing in the world of technology and what it's going to mean to both the government and big companies like Goldman. Look, I, I think we're on another technological wave. Um, and with every technological wave, there's really good parts of it and there's bad parts of it. So when I look at the, the whole AI wave that we're going through, um, which has been going on for a lot longer than people understand, I think it's just become in the forefront of people's minds since we've seen retail products this year. So we've seen the chat GBTs and we've seen the BARD. Everyone understands what AI is on the retail basis. On the enterprise basis, there's been, there's been AI products for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. But with those products, you see the vulnerabilities. You have to understand the cybersecurity and, and how vulnerable we are. You know, you've seen what happened in some, some casinos recently. Yeah. And you see all the vulnerabilities we have. So as we continue to grow out our infrastructure, we continue to grow out data centers, and we continue to grow out you know, access to data, access to computing, I think we equally have to build out you know, protection, cybersecurity, make our infrastructure harder and harder. You know, the White House saw this earlier in the year. They put out zero trust zone um, uh, executive orders. So there's things that we need to do in this country. We need to harden our borders. We need to harden our edges. We need to harden our technology. Electrical grid is very vulnerable. Uh, I, every, everything is vulnerable. Let what we've, look, we've seen pipelines. We've seen lots of cyber attacks on lots of infrastructure that none of us think is really infrastructure. Whether it's hotel keys, right. or whether it's pipelines, whether it's slot machines, you know, we can go through all the different cyber attacks. Those are ones we know about. There's plenty more going on that we don't know about. So, I, I think we're underinvested as a country on cyber. I think we're underinvested at, at, in protecting ourselves. I think AI is a whole nother leg of huge opportunity, but another leg of huge vulnerabilities. Yeah. As we put more and more data into the system, we create more and more data, we've got more and more vulnerabilities, and we have to understand how AI can help us, how it can be useful to us. I think that's really important to us. And the blockchain, to me, it's the future of settlement. It's the future of doing business. You know, we we still have many, many arcane processes. Now, we've, we've quasi-modernize them. If you think of something as simple as stock settlement, right. you know, we've gone from you know, moving physical certificates to now digitally transa- transacting and settling. But why are we having T plus two or settlement? Why aren't we- instant, Why aren't easier. we, like we have commodity markets that, 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 that they clear real time. We need to modernize all of this infrastructure so we can get all of the vulnerabilities and all of the risks out of the system. We have the technology. We just have to adapt this technology. But when you adapt the technology, you have to put the prophylactics around it Mm -hmm. and make sure it's secure. You know, we we talk about blockchain and so many people I hear saying, what what are we going to do with it? it? What purpose does it serve? Go back to the financial crisis. If we had those mortgages on something like a blockchain, 
who owned what house, all that, all that confusion, it, it all tracks and settles automatically, and, and there's a permanent public register of that. Well, even, even simpler, if, if you had the mortgages on a blockchain, you had house titles on a blockchain, mm-hmm. we could transact houses daily. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that you buy a house on Monday and you do a title search and then you go get a mortgage and then you sell it to me on Tuesday and I have to do it and I can't close for 30 days because I have to go do another title search and I have to do all the same work. If it was done once, put it in the blockchain and we transfer it with all the the documentation, these things become, the fungibility of them becomes much greater. It's a win for everyone. You, you have much better collateral. You've got much better ability to securitize. You've got much better ability to close and transact. You know, we are going to get there. You know, there's lots of natural antibodies to get there. There's mm-hmm. lots of natural businesses that get disintermediated. But we've been disintermediating businesses for the last 200 years. Mm-hmm. And every time we do it, we become a stronger and bigger, most importantly, a bigger economy. So let's talk about AI a minute. And, and I use a, a really fascinating app called uh, Perplexity. Um, and I know you're an investor in various I, AI um, companies. So I asked Perplexity, <laughs> tell me about Gary Cohn's uh, history at Goldman Sachs. And then I did the same thing. Tell me about Gary Cohn's history at the White House. And I sent it to your assistant. And the Goldman stuff, perfect. The White House stuff, uh, just a run of corrections and cross-throughs, <laughs> and it kind of is fascinating. And by the way, this aspect of AI two months ago uh, couldn't have done any of this. It, right. It's it's amazing how it just gets better and better and better over time. What do you see AI doing? Is this going to disintermediate uh, a lot of people? The fear is people going to be thrown out of work, or is this something that's going to, like the internet, create a whole bunch of new jobs? I think it's the latter. So we've lived through these seismic revolutions, right? From the cotton gin to the combustion engine to the personal computer. When we lived through each of these, we've always worried about the jobs we're going to lose. Like, oh my God, the person that prints the memo and delivers the memo to everyone in the office. When we have email, what's that person going to do? Well, all those companies put that person to work doing something much more productive and much more profitable and actually much more fulfilling for the individual. Mm -hmm. So as I look at each of these seismic evolutions in companies, every company I know has gotten bigger and dramatically bigger. Whether it's the personal computer, the cell phone, the internet, you look at these, every company has gotten dramatically bigger. Look, AI is going to displace some people. But I think you're going to take those people that are in probably the least satisfying jobs Mm -hmm. and be able to retrain them into much more satisfying, much more fulfilling jobs and allow these companies to become much bigger and more efficient and cover clients more effectively. And they will, they, they will grow into those jobs. Just like the person that used to print the memo and deliver the memo to everyone's mailbox in the office. Remember when we used to have little cubbies in the office? Right. I'm old enough to remember that. Right. Pick up your mail in the morning. Like no one has a mailbox in an office anymore. The, the, that person is, is now doing something much more productive. And the AI, AI is going to help that. And, and on the flip side, think of the, the, the productivity gains or think of the things we're going to be able to change in the regulatory environment where you're going to be able to really monitor things 
that you've never been able to monitor. Like the regulatory environment's always been after the fact. Can AI now monitor human behavior real time? Now, when you say regulatory, from our perspective in this business, securities trading, crypto, how, what what is potential in this space? So look at human behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, human behavior to me is regulatory behavior. You know, in, in, in a bank, are your are your employees doing the right thing? You know, can can you create AI? an AI overface, an over, uh, something that sits on top of your organization that makes sure your employees are doing the right things or are they doing something wrong? Like, it's not going to be foolproof, but it's going to help you manage your organization in a way that makes management teams smarter and say, hey, look here, there might be something bad going on. No more Barings Bank sort of hidden losses a, type of a, thing. Exactly. You know, so so it's it's the old adage, and, and I was pretty good at this, but I wasn't foolproof. Like every day at five o'clock, I got an email. I was supposed to get it by five o'clock from every risk-based desk. And if I didn't get it by five o'clock, you know, I didn't think about it. By 5.15, something's wrong. By 5.30, there was a problem. <laughs> like, because I didn't get it because something really good happened. Because if something really good happened, they'd called me already. Right. So I didn't get it because something bad had happened. So I'd stay with almost 100% accuracy, unless literally it was, oh, I forgot to hit send. If I would call that desk and say, hey, I didn't get your end-of-day email, it's like, oh, um, need, need to tell you something. Oh. Like, But I would remember to do that. Now, there are certain days I'd probably forget. If I had an AI machine that said, hey, you didn't get all your end-of-day emails or you didn't get end-of-day email from this desk. You and get an alert? It tells I get an you alert. That. And it, you can even have it reach out and, and tag the person. Hey, give Gary a call. Right. And there's your, you know exactly who's like these, on the game. All I'm doing is monitoring human behavior. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and look, I'm investing in a company that monitors, is going to monitor human behavior and tell you employees are acting, you know, they're, they're doing stuff they're supposed to do. They're doing stuff they're not supposed to do. And by the way, it may be fine. Or they're, they're doing something today that they've always done or they're doing something today they've never done. And it's just going to alert you to things that you're not yeah. going to see on your like own. Like it, it, it's a look over here. It may not be a problem. It's like, hey, this is different today. When cyber criminals strike, the difference between a catastrophic event and resilience is preparedness. Finance leaders who plan ahead can thwart the damage posed by ransomware. Yet in a recent EY poll, only 23% of directors expressed confidence in their organization's ability to respond to a ransomware attack. Cyber preparedness is just one facet of the complex risk landscape finance leaders face every day. Now more than ever, it's vital to keep ahead of developments. Cybercrime, macroeconomic conditions, ESG reporting. You can't predict the future, but you can prepare for it. By understanding your risk, you can make your business resilient to challenges on the road ahead. What's more, you can turn those risks into opportunities. EY helps CFOs, boards, and audit committees see beyond the numbers to uncover the critical insights that make their organizations resilient, even in an ever-shifting landscape. For more insights that matter, visit ey.com slash beyond the numbers. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. 
It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. So let's talk a little bit uh, about IBM. You were vice chairman there. I kind of think of IBM and AI with them playing Jeopardy and, and participating there. What's the future of AI at IBM now? Well, I'm glad you asked the question that way. So IBM's been involved in AI for 50 years. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and, and you sort of said it. You know, in 2011, Watson won a Jeopardy. 2012, Watson beat Kasparov at chess. So IBM has been involved in the machine learning, the AI business now for decades. We've been serving our enterprise clients in building AI products for them for the last years. What's become really prevalent recently, and the reason we're all talking about AI today, is there's finally retail products out. IBM does not have a retail product. And we're not going to have a retail product. Mm -hmm. It's not our business. Our business is to be the AI inside of companies that you may face on the retail side. So a good example is a, C a CVS. Mm -hmm. During COVID, IBM was, was, was operating the CVS call center for the millions of calls a day for COVID. How do I get my, my COVID vaccine? Where do I go? How do I schedule appointment? That was all IBM huh. AI managing that. And, and so you're, we are involved. We are doing a lot, but we're doing it on an enterprise solution basis for our clients. We've got AI and software that allows people to manage their physical building, allows them to manage what their carbon footprint, allows them to manage you know, how efficiently their building's running. You know, what, what, what compressors should be running? What motors should be running? What lights should be turned off? How do I turn them on? When to replace them? There's an enormous amount of technology going on in this space, but it's done on, a, on an enterprise level. So IBM is a big AI player, and, and, and we continue to build out more and more opportunities for our clients to use our enterprise AI. So it's, it, it's a really interesting crossroads in, in the company's history. So let's tie that together with our prior discussion on cybercrime. Can can we use AI to monitor systems and alert us when there are intrusions or hacks or other cyber uh, hack problems? A a absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, IBM has a had a big presence at the U.S. Open a couple of weeks ago, and we did this big presentation on everything we were doing there. And we've got software and AI that was talking about all the cyber hacks going on in the U.S. Open and how you prioritize the hacks. Like, this is an irrelevant hack. This is an important hack. We're going to be able to use AI to monitor the bad and the good. 
And we're and it's going to be equally effective to make sure we're using it both in monitoring what's going on well in the world and where we need to watch things and where we need to prioritize. If you're getting hacked millions of times a day, you've got to figure out what are the important hacks. Like you can't get distracted by the ones that don't matter. You've got to spend your time on the hacks that are really relevant. Hmm. And AI can be helpful in, 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 in allowing you to do that. Let me let me throw throw you a, a curveball question. When I was a kid, I had. Before we were diagnosing everybody with ADHD, uh, I had uh, ADHD with just a little bit of dyslexia thrown in. Um, and with me, it was spelling. And I, uh, you know, before I had a wedding ring on, I didn't know left from right. I could tell you a story about taking my driver's uh, test. And every time the guy says, make a left, make a right, I would flash my index and thumb because I could recognize the L. And he's, what the hell are you doing? Uh, I don't know, left from right. You've been very public about having pretty severe dyslexia growing up and said it taught you, I'm going to put quote you back to you, hey, I learned about failure and thought of the world as that's the default and it's all upside from there. Tell us how your dyslexia affected you personally and, and your career. Well, you said it. So I, I, I characterize myself as one of the world's greatest failures. You know, I knew how to fail at everything at a young age. You know, school to me was, you know, impossible. I never thought I could get out of elementary school. And there, you know, there was a story about a meeting with your parents where they got some vocational advice. Would, yes. would you share that? Well, I, you know, I was in the, I wasn't supposed to hear it. But I remember very clearly one of the teachers pulling my mom aside and saying to my mom, look, you'll be lucky if your son grows up and can drive a truck. That's just what a kid wants to hear, yeah. right? Well, no, by the way, it was motivational. Yeah. It was motivational. Like, I, I heard it, and I said to my mom, I said, well, it's going to be a nice truck, you know, <laughs> when I drive it. <laughs> that, that's, but that's... in my mind, though, I knew I wasn't going to drive a truck. Mm -hmm. Like, I knew that I could figure certain things out that other people couldn't figure out. So if you could talk to me and explain to me something, I could come up with the answer. So I was smart enough to understand that. I just couldn't sit there when they handed me a piece of paper and, you know, say, read this and like, okay, who won the race when it said, the, you know, Two people raced and so-and-so won in first grade. I, you know, to see if you had basic reading skills, I go, I don't know. Was there a race? <laughs> uh, like my answer was like, what race? My answer would have been what race? So given your career, both on the corporate side and the public service side, uh, are there any residual effects for, from this? I'm assuming your, your reading skills have improved since then. Yeah, yes. So I have become a decent technical reader. Mm -hmm. If you give me a contract, I'll be I'm pretty damn good at reading contract. So, but a contract to me has total logical. Mm -hmm. You know, I know section one. What's going to be in section one? I know what's going to be in section two. I know what's going to be in section three. I know what's going to be in section four. I'm really good at reading contract. Um, if you give me something that I don't know what the order of it is, it's going to be difficult for me because I'm working so hard at the words that. It's hard for me to process where where it's growing. So, so technical reading much easier than books and things like yeah, that. Yeah, I don't read a lot of books. Like a lot would maybe round up to zero. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. You've now been... I, I get to listen to books on tape. Right. So do you enjoy that experience? Yeah, um, 
a little bit. It's it, it's still hard for me. You know, I didn't grow up as a reader, so my brain's not that conditioned to that. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it, it's not a natural for me. But look, do I read? Do I try and read the newspapers every day? Do I try and you know read the editorial? Do I read a lot of editorial pages? Do I lo- read a lot of news? I'm, I do read a lot of news and editorial pages. But you know, look, they're hundreds. Of, they're measured in hundreds of words. Right. Yeah. All right, so let's jump to our favorite questions, starting with uh, what are you streaming? If you're not reading, what are you what are you watching? So again, I, I, I watch a lot of sort of factual stuff. Mm-hmm. And lately I've been going through sort of the Netflix library of sports, actuals, shows, Full Swing, Breakpoint, The Swamp, uh, Drive to Survive. I've been going through all the sports Drive stuff. Drive to Survive was great. They um did you see I haven't seen the one I'm assuming you saw the one on the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan I I actually haven't it's I amazing got his, oh oh no I saw that one They're, during COVID right so yeah, that no, one's amazing part, but I haven't seen the Nike one yet so which everyone tells me I got to see uh, it's an interesting movie there's also one about Steph Curry yeah I think that's on Apple TV and then there's another one about uh, Magic Johnson and the L A Lakers um, but that's interesting that that that's what uh, gets you. Uh, interested, you know, very it, competitive, very interesting thing. It's it's look, it's a, it's a little bit about winning, right. which maybe tells you something about yeah. me, but it's about winning. I, I I pick that up. How about mentors who helped shape your career? I think there's two big mentors. My grandfather, for one. Oh, really? What um, what was his role? Big time. So you know, as we discussed, I was highly dyslexic going up, and you know, my parents, you know, didn't know what to do with me. So like, I, I don't blame them. They were young parents. And my grandfather was convinced, like, there's nothing wrong with, with, with my grandson. He's really smart. He's going to be fine. You don't need to send him off. You don't need to panic. And so my grandfather really sort of put me under his wing and said, like, you're going to be fine. Just just do what you need to do. And so hmm. we, we had a very, very close relationship. Um, and, and, and so he really got me through sort of my early childhood years all the way through high school. Like, he was there for me. And then, um, you know, there's a guy by the name of, and I mentioned before, Jim Riley, mm-hmm. who when I went to Goldman, um, he was the, he he became partner in 1990. He was the one that hired me into Goldman. And, you know, I became partner in 94. And I'd become partner by sort of doing everything, sort of being the guy that everyone could go to, being the guy that could fix everything. And when I became partner I was trying to do everything and you know it was one of those stories where I was trying to manage a big business I was trying to trade a big book I was trying to deal with clients and I was doing a really bad job of <laughs> of, of it like and, and my trading book showed it like I I was having probably the worst trading streak of my life I was I was losing money every day and I I didn't know how to lose money every day and um I was living at London at the time, and you know, after like a week of not sleeping, you know, I waited till like seven o'clock in the morning, New York time, because I I knew he'd be driving in. He lived in the island. He'd be driving in the office, or he'd be in the office. I called Jimmy up, and I sort of gave him the "woe is me" story. Like Jimmy, I'm working so hard. I've never worked this hard in my life. Like I'm I'm seeing ten clients a day. I'm dealing with the sales desk. I'm dealing with this. I'm trying to trade. My trading's horrible. I can't make money. What should I do? 
And he basically said, figure it out, and hung up the phone. <laughs> Not even prioritize. <laughs> nope. Just, just figure like, it figure out. Figure it out. Figure it out. Click. Wow. And how'd you figure it out? No, he basically said, I got the message. Like, you idiot. You can't do everything. Right. Like, so literally five minutes later, I um, called everyone in my office. I said, guys, I'm done trading. And I gave my trading book away. And I said, I'm here to see clients. I'm here to deal with problems. Come see me. And the guy took over my trading book and said, thank you very much. And the, the, the salespeople said, oh, my God, you're human again. <laughs> and everything was fine. <laughs> Great. Really good decision. Yeah. Our final two questions. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in the world of investing and finance? So, look, I, A, I think it's a great place to start your career and your life, no matter where you end up. Because the fundamentals of understanding finance and understanding markets and understanding a balance sheet is really an important skill. And it doesn't matter what you do with your life. So, so I'd encourage anyone in, who's got an interest to go into the to go into the industry it's a tough way to go it's like the first couple of years of going into financial services it's boot camp you know you're working 24 hours a day seven days a week you're on call it's not fun so I, I'll, I'll warn you of that but you should do it um, you should get the experience and then you should take some risk in your career you know after you've learned the fundamentals you know after a couple of years, just because you went into a sales and trading program or just because you went into an investment banking program doesn't mean that's what you should do. And, and what I see so many young kids do is they get hired into X job and they stay in X job mm -hmm. for the next 20 or 30 years. Figure out what you really like and then go figure out how to get there. So if you're, you're hired as an investment banker but you really want to be on a, a, a trader, go try and figure out how to be a trader. If you're hired as a trader and you really want to be a, a salesperson, go be a salesperson. You're hired as a salesperson want to go be a banker, figure out how to be a banker. Don't just get stuck where you got hired into. Hmm. Really good advice. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing or public service today that would have been useful to know 40 or so years ago when you first landed uh, at U.S. Steel. I knew nothing 40 years ago, <laughs> honestly. So, and, and, and by the way, I learn new things every day. If you don't think you're going to learn something new in the corporate world or the investing world, you're wrong because every day is a new day. You know, it, it, it's like we were talking about what the Fed's going through now. This whole set of circumstances with Fed tightening and government spending, it's a whole set of new circumstances that has to be reevaluated. You know, I, I, I learn new things every day, and I think it's important that you just understand that what was true last year may not be true this year, and what you believe to be true may not be true tomorrow. And I think that's really important. Really amazing stuff. Gary, thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Gary Cohn, former director of the National Economic Council in the White House under President Trump. Prior to that, he was president and chief operating officer at Goldman Sachs, where he spent most of his career. If you enjoy this conversation, well, be sure and check out any of the previous 500 or so we've done over the past nine years. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Barry underscore Ritholtz. 
Follow all of the Bloomberg family of podcasts on Twitter at podcast. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team of experts who helped me put these conversations together each week. My producer for this episode was Rob Bragg. My audio engineer was Sarah Livesey. Uh, Atika Valbron is our project manager. Sean Russo is my researcher. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.